Ready graphics? Ready theme? It was directed by Barnett Kelman. It's directed by Barnett Kelman. It is directed by Barnett Kelman. Hey, we've heard that name before. We have. It is directed by Barnett Kelman. Again. And directed by Barnett Kelman. Directed by Barnett Kelman. Oh, yes. It was directed by Barnett Kelman. Barnett Kelman. What? No. Stop. Yeah. Kelman, comma, Barnett. Hi, this is Jesse Mullins. And this is Lauren Milberger. And we have a we have a very exciting interview for you today. Yes, we're going to end our talk on season one with an interview with Emmy Award winning director Barnett Kelman. He directed the first four seasons of Murphy Brown, except for two episodes in season four. Mm-hmm. And we thought it would be a really great sort of cap to the end of our season one talk. It's a lovely little retrospective, and he brings so much delightful detail and behind the scenes, and he even gives us some feedback on things we have said already. Yeah. Which we completely geeked out about that we got to have this conversation. <laughs> yes, I mean, obviously Barnett's name has been a name that we have read about and seen on and screen. said every episode. Every episode, yes. So uh, we wanted to give you a little extra background on Ph.D. Barnett Kelman that you may not be familiar with. Dr. Kelman. This is from his profile, actually, at the USC Cinematic Arts School. Um, it says he was educated at Colgate University and the Yale School of Drama, which he mentions briefly for us. He received his Ph.D. from Union Institute at Antioch, a recipient of the prestigious Danforth Graduate Fellowship and the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. He has traveled to observe the work of theaters throughout Europe and the United States. In addition to teaching at USC School of Cinematic Arts, he has been on the faculties of the American Film Institute, Columbia University Film School, CCNY, NYU, the Circle in the Square Acting School, and has served as a resource person at the Sundance Institute June Lab and the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center's National Playwrights Conference. as well as having an Emmy for Birth 101, the season four finale, his last season um, working exclusively on Murphy Brown. He did come back for the finale. Mm-hmm. He also has a DGA award for the pilot. So he's done a few things. Mm-hmm. And we, we got to talk to him as well about his, his work as an educator. Um, so please look forward to that. If you like this interview, please leave us a review on iTunes. It would mean so much to us. You can also follow us on social media at Murphy Brown Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes, and you can find us on, on our website at murphybrownpod.com. That's where we have an FAQ to get us to the Spotify playlist, the Murphy Brown Empowerment Playlist, with music from and inspired by Murphy Brown. You can also email us at our Gmail, which is murphybrownpod at gmail.com. So enjoy this episode, and we'll see you uh, next week for part two. Will the mystery guest please sign in? Hello, I'm Barnett Kelman, director. <laughs> Very nice. Very succinct. Excellent well, line reading. Yes, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So we glad were, to be with you. Yes, we appreciate you you coming on the show. Well, we appreciate, uh, you, as you've shared with us that you have listened to a few episodes, that we appreciate that you're sticking with us as we continue to laugh about how, look, it's your name again. <laughs> yes, we have uh, four years of that. Yeah, the vision yeah. that is Barnett Cummins. <laughs> well, that that was a rare. I mean, that was a rare opportunity, a rare privilege to you know be able to do all those episodes and just be working with a repertory company the whole time. Well, and I'm not sure a lot of people, consumers of television, always realize uh, that it's rare to have one director for that long to be able to really shape that vision and it's not trading off per episode. It it, it is rare. Um, It shouldn't necessarily be as rare as it, as it is. Um, There's a, um, 
I mean, people must have different reasons. Uh, I'm talking about writer producers. I'm a little, I'm a little cynical about it. I think that the there's two, especially in the days when I was doing it, there were two dynamics at work. The shows of the shows that um, you know that were considered really high quality and really plum opportunities uh, had the opportunity to land a director and get a full commitment that way. Um, other shows didn't necessarily. People wanted to play the field. Conversely, though, um, some writers didn't want to have just one director. They liked the revolving door or the bullpen of directors, if you will. I found that the best writers and the most secure writers, and Diane definitely being at the top of that list, um, liked the idea of having a partner. I mean, that's really the reason. It is a, it's a marriage. It's a partner. It's another it's another um, guiding voice on the show, and um, n- not everybody was willing to, uh, on television, on multicam television, to let a director into that circle. Diane, you know, more than welcomed me. She, you know, which I'll be forever grateful and appreciative. <laughs> well, we'd love to, uh, we like to kind of start with everybody asking what we call your origin story. What, what got you into the field to begin with, or your childhood? Oh, my. Oh, my, 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 my origin story. Um, well, a little bit like Diane, you know, when when uh, when we did Baby Love, I guess, and we all showed our baby pictures oh, yeah. and Diane's mm-hmm. and Diane's pictures of her watching the TV. Um, I grew up, you know, first generation glued to the box. So I uh, I absorbed an awful lot from television. I watched an awful lot of it. Although I, I never became focused on television as a medium uh, so much. I was a theater guy. And in fact, in those early days of television, there was a lot of theater on television. Yeah. Playhouse 90 and all these play of the week. And I would watch the play of the week actually would do a play and repeat it every night of the week. The same play. I mean, they, they would kinescope it and, and rerun it every single night. So I would watch Iceman Cometh you know, for five, six, seven days. So anyway, I didn't really realize until they opened the museum of what was then called the Museum of Broadcasting, the Paley Center in New York, I didn't realize how much television had influenced my theater. But but I was already a theater director. And I, I, I knew by the time I was, I was started as an actor and I knew by the time I was 15, I wanted to direct. And um, I kind of went in a fairly straight path about that. I mean, I went to uh, liberal arts college, so I didn't I didn't go to you know performing arts, or I didn't go to Carnegie or some program that you know. But I but but straight from college, I went to Yale Drama, and then right after after I left Yale Drama, I started directing new plays in New York, and I was directing. Um, I, I I I became a specialist without kind of in in intending to uh, as a director in the premier productions of new American plays and into the midst of that. And one of them became, uh, became uh, something of a hit and ran for a year, which I then gave me the opportunity to do um, the feature version of it. And around that time, there was a new head of um, comedy at CBS 
named Greg Mayday, who happens to be, have you heard this name on the podcast before? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Greg also happens to be from Buffalo, like Diane. And I think they actually knew each other from their, I think their Catholic schools, boys school and girls school kind of thing. But anyway, uh, crazily, uh, he was he was a theater bug also, and he came to New York and did something very unusual. He said that he thought that um, the the jobs of somebody who does the original production of a of a new play is very similar to the job of doing a pilot for a television show, especially a a live multicam television show, which is kind of like a play. And you're you're creating the world. You're helping design, you know, the set and plan out the template for the staging of the show. At casting, you're casting the characters for the first time. You're helping um, determine all those things. And he hired me out of a, as a New York theater director. He hired me to direct a couple of pilots for him, which was an enormous leap, which I had no idea how rare that was or how unusual that was. And I thought, well, okay, this is, I'll give it a try. You know, I mean, it's a good way to make the kind of money you don't make in New York as a theater director. Yeah. And <laughs> I went out and did actually four pilots that first pilot season. A couple of them went on the air. And then I just, after pilot season, I just went back to New York and continued to do my theater. And then the next pilot season, I was offered a couple pilots, one of which was Murphy, and I sort of wound up out here and never went back <laughs> except to visit. So that that's how I wound up over on Murphy, and in and in primetime television primarily. I didn't realize that you hadn't had as much television experience then before you did Murphy. Had you done any episodic or just the pilots? No, I had done a bit. Uh, I had done a bit, so there was some credibility there. It wasn't uh, completely off the wall, uh, but but it was a huge leap to to be because the pilot list, the list of pilot directors, was extremely small, extremely short in those days, and it didn't necessarily relate to the episodic list. Sure. Mm -hmm. And and uh, what happened was that I uh, there was a couple of random factors. One was that at a certain point, uh, uh, a producer named Paul Rausch, who was kind of a very um, uh, aggressive in a, great, in a good sense, uh, entrepreneurial and creative force in the daytime world, which is all there was in New York virtually was daytime yeah. television mm -hmm. at that period. I mean, there was Kate and Alley for a while, and there was later Cosby. But the shows that did come to New York did not use New York talent. They all brought in directors, writers, they brought everybody from, from LA. So, but, but daytime was a, you know, was soaps were the thing. And Paul was, Paul was very ambitious and he hired, um, actors straight off of Broadway. He, he, he cast his shows, whoever was hot on Broadway and who was a, ever a big name, um, and a quality actor, he wanted them on his shows and after a little while of doing that, he decided that he wanted theater directors to direct them and work with them rather than the more traditional technical route of multicam directors. So he trained, frankly, a whole generation of, um, he, uh, of theater directors who all learned multicam in his studios. 
John Pasquin, me, Ron Lagomarsino, just the David Trainer, people that went on to make you know really big um, careers in that field. All came all with theater directors who came out of Paul's um, training ground. So I had something, and then and then I, I came out to visit once uh, to L.A. and I was visiting my friend Carol Kane on the set of on the set because I had directed her in a, two plays. And I was visiting her on camera blocking day on the set of the first show that the Charles Brothers and Jimmy Burroughs did after Cheers. Cheers was in its first, going into its second season, they did a pilot called All is Forgiven. And Carol was one of the stars of that. And I was watching camera blocking and Jimmy knew about me and he knew about the play key exchange that I had done in New York that had run and he knew he had, he just knew about it. And he came over to me and he said, uh, why don't you come, uh, why don't you come back tomorrow? And I said, no, I'm going to, I'm going home. I've got a plane ticket. He said, nah, come back tomorrow. <laughs> so I did and they gave me the first five, he gave me the first five episodes of that show, All is Forgiven. to do so i had done a block i didn't really know what i was doing and i had never shot multi-cam film i had only done multi-cam tape so i was really learning on the job in an incredible it was again another crazy leap of faith so i I mean that's the theater kid in you yeah I, i guess and then i did that and then they asked me to do um designing women and i did a bunch of episodes of designing women and that went very well but I was still like living in New York, and these were just these odd things I, I was doing. And then this pilot thing happened. That's the origin story of how, at least, how I got to Murphy. So, how do you feel your time directing theater helped you then directing television? Enormously, enormously. It helps me in directing everything. Um, I mean, w- what I'm more concerned with than anything is is working with text and working with actors and making what is on the page come alive and making what's intended to be funny, funny, making sure that it is, protecting what's there, adding what I can. Um, and the thing that I sort of challenge myself to do and pride myself on always trying to do is get the best performance out of an actor that they are capable of giving. That's all. I mean, you know, yeah, I can't make them, you know, but, Give them, create the conditions, and and find things, find things for them to do that they're going to love doing, and they're going to look good doing. I was going to say we we talk a lot in the episodes, and you may have heard in the episodes you listen to that there is, and as theater kids who grew up doing these things, I you see the the joy of the performance in a lot of these actors, and the performances are very theatrical, and especially in these guest stars that you get, like the Colleen Dewhursts and these people who just live in that moment and we talk about uh, Charlie Kimbrough and how in his, the gym in the background is always doing something interesting and it doesn't taking away it's just there's a constant life the guest stars always seem to be acting through the laughter which just increases the moment there's a lot that's just alive that reads theater to us well you, you know I approached you know I, ha- I had the opportunity to start on day one obviously with the pilot and and with everything and I, I didn't know any better than to approach it entirely as a play. And Candace will not only joke about it, but complain uh, about <laughs> me to this day because, I mean, I rehearsed it 
like a play, and I rehearsed long hours, and Diane um, was good enough, really, seriously, to give me the hours on stage, to work everything out and have layers of texture involved. So our run-throughs, for example, and it's my fault, and they've yelled at me about it, our run-throughs were like late in the afternoon, which meant I had a day to rehearse. I had the day to rehearse and then call the actor, the writers down around 4 o'clock, let's say, which meant that they then put in an hour or so of run-through time and notes time and then started their rewrites. Now, uh, the format as a whole is writer-centric. It's actually writer-centric, and it's not director-centric. It's not actor-centric very often. It's star-centric, but not, as you say, not a play. And and usually, very often, a, a director's being asked to put it on its feet so that the writers can see and hear their words and then address everything from the point of view of changing the words. Diane, being a theater person herself, knew there was a, there were other opportunities there, and she appreciated it. And Diane and I had this thing that I've never, you know, uh, it's one of truly the high point relationship of my career. We had this thing where we would watch sitting either side by side or one or two seats apart during run-throughs. And um, we had a way of signaling each other during the run-through, which was that she knew that I was that I was working really hard with the actors to really get them close to a performance so that I was really shaking out the material and really trusting the material and uh, trying to get everything out of it I could. And so sometimes when something wasn't working and we could see it wasn't working, we would look at each other and I would go, I would go, I would put my hands up a little bit like, and what I meant by that was we really worked on that. And she would nod and she would make a note, meaning that they would go address that moment. Conversely, if some joke didn't land or something like that, and I thought we had missed it, but we could get it, I would sort of signal her, like, give me another shot at that. And she wouldn't rewrite it out from under us. The other shows that I had been on, the writers never gave a thing a second chance. They never gave a so, – so the actors were always getting one bite of the apple on a joke, on a moment, on, on anything. And Diane had the patience and gave us the time on stage, which was great. I, I Again, I, the things that I did, a lot of what I did, I did out of ignorance of the ethos of the culture of multicam that I was coming into. And the fact that I was an outsider and the fact that I'd come, not, I hadn't been trained, I hadn't been grooved in, in the etiquette. I didn't even know, you know, I I I it did, I didn't even know what the effect of the late run-throughs were on the on the writers. I just assumed you need that rehearsal time, especially in an ensemble piece. I also had this other thing that that enabled Diane, I think, to trust um, that way, which is I I I told the actors that I wanted to treat the script. It was my dead playwrights um, theory. I said, let's take the script and work on it as if it was Shakespeare. It was a play that had been proven a million times. It's new to us. 
the writer's dead, so you can't go asking for a rewrite. We've got to make this work. And let's approach it that way. And then let's trust the writers that if it doesn't work after we've given it our best shot, um, then uh, then they'll change it. Let's trust them to do that. I'd seen a lot of actors. The few, the few shows I had done, I had seen actors essentially act a critique of the material. What they would do is if they didn't like something, they wouldn't commit to it. And they would tank it so that the writers would change it. If they didn't want to do something, that's the way they would do it. And especially, oh, my God. Well, there were a lot of shows where the relationship between the stage and the writer's room was antagonistic. And there were a lot of stars who sort of, whose names won't be mentioned, but who that I worked with, who... um, who had, you know, were very talented people. They had had TV series before, and they would just, you know, at rehearsal, they would, uh, the the pilot that I did with a big television star right before I did Murphy, the, and as I said, I was new to the town. Um, and, well, I'll, I'll say it, you know, it was the late Robert Guillaume, and, he was a very good actor and a, and a really very decent man. But he had already been a big star on Benson. And we were doing a pilot. And we were like having our first rehearsals. And Robert turns to the script supervisor and says, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say such and such. And I was from the theater. You don't do that in the theater. So I was kind of you know, puzzled, but I, I, I wanted to find a nice way of, you know, speaking to this man. And I said, and be respectful, but on the other hand, work the way I thought we should work. I assumed we should work. And I said, okay, let's, we'll take that, we'll take a note and I'll, I'll run that by the writers. Mm-hmm. Run that suggestion by the writers. And he looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's a different world. Wow. And then the next time it happened, I said the same thing. We'll, we'll take that note. Please take the note. I said to the script supervisor, we'll run that. We'll, I'll bring it to the writer's room later on. And he said, wait a second. I'm not, you know, I'm telling you what I'm going to say. And I knew that that wasn't, I, I, I'm way too interested in good writing and I wanted to work with good writers and I wanted to, I wanted to make their work work. So anyway, and that was the, that was the mood that I brought in on day one to Murphy. And, you know, Diane let me do it. And Candace let me do it, by the way. <laughs> Candace trusted me to do it. I mean, that's really, and, 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 you know, her response also, there's another thing that was going on, which is there were there were very few blind dates. In, well, that's not exactly true, but they weren't blind dates. Um, we really worked hard on the casting of the pilot. We worked every single day for over a month, and we worked down to the wire. And and I gave the studio long. I gave our casting director, wonderful casting director Phyllis Huffman, long lists of actors, including long lists of actors from New York whose work I knew including Charlie Kimbrough, you know, and um, they brought people from New York for us to see. And there were a lot of theater actors involved. Everybody, most of the people were, you know, were theater actors. And I, 
Diane or I had either worked with everybody or seen everybody's work, it, with the exception of Pat Corley. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody else was there was really kind of a sense that they were chosen because we thought we could play this ensemble like this together. Yeah. So um, I. I'd love to hear how that collaboration started from the pilot and how you, you connected with Diane and started work on the show. Oh, yeah, I did skip a part of the story. Wow, good point. Good point. Okay, yeah, wow. Uh, so I had just done this feature, an indep- basically an independent feature with a negative pickup of Fox Pickups. It was released by Fox, but it was a New York feature. And the producers of that, it was called Key Exchange, and, and it was based on the, the play by the same name. After we did this feature, we were looking for uh, other, other small, human, funny, similar. We were looking for more projects. And uh, I was with William Morris, and my agents gave me a, 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 a spec movie script of Diane's. And... I read it and I loved it. And this producer and I came out to L.A. and we met with Diane and Joel. And we talked about optioning this uh, this script. And for one reason or another, I can't even remember why now, it, it never came about. But we had had a great meeting with Diane and Joel about a feature. And then, based on that, after Foley Square, oh, no. No, gosh, I'm forgetting a lot. Diane asked for me on Foley Square. Diane asked for me for Foley Square, and the producer on that, because Diane was a baby on Foley Square, so she had two real veterans, nice guys, Bernie and Ornstein, and ugh, I'm forgetting the names. Um, she had two veterans put with her, and I think she feels that they were real mentors and really she had a good positive experience, but they were the ones that were going to have to hire me. So I had a meeting with one of them in New York without Diane. And they just said, you know, we can't hire this guy because he's too inexperienced on Foley. So they didn't. And that was all. Forget that story. And then I got a call after I had done my first pilot season, I guess, Um that Diane asked for me on Sister Sam to do the first episode of the second season, and she was now in charge, right? She had her own show, and she asked for me to do the first two episodes, I think, first one for sure, of the second season. Um, So I came out and did that, and we had a blast working together. It just was so easy. So there was a very positive... uh, feeling even though we'd never worked together i had already admired her work she had obviously liked my movie well enough to be willing to share that you know so it was a date waiting to happen i think i would say the same thing so then how did that connect to starting your work on murphy brown the first thing when i was offered the pilot i read the script i thought it was amazing more importantly, my wife, Nancy Meddy, an actress, thought it was amazing. She said, you've got to do this. Um, and so I signed on and spoke with Diane. And Diane told me what was going on at that point in regards to casting. 
which was that, um, well, everybody knows the story. Diane had kind of written it with Joe Beth Williams in mind, and I, I knew Joe Beth too. And Joe Beth was either passing or close to passing, even though they were very good friends, Diane and Joe Beth. Um, but Joe Beth was not, Joe Beth's film career was kind of taking off, and she was not ready to commit to a television show at that point. And Diane was talking about Candace Bergen, and I said, I think that's a, we, we both agreed that that was a great idea. And that negotiation, that dance was beginning. And quickly came to fruition that Diane wanted, we wanted Candace. And the next step, which has been much talked about and written about, was that whole, what we had to go through to get CBS to sign off on that. How that was not a slam dunk. The amazing thing, of course, to us was that Candace was willing to do it. Um, because in those days, what seems so obvious now, but in those days, um, Candace was, you know, Candace was a, a movie star. Candace was a movie lady. And there wasn't a lot of travel back and forth. It was kind of a one-way street, you know. And um, But um, Candace tells the story herself about how reading on the uh, reading the script on a plane, she it, she really fell in love with it and um, and got encouragement from Louis. And I think she Louis Mal, her husband, mm -hmm. and I think she got encouragement. Very important encouragement, I think, from Mike Nichols, you know, and she was trepidatious about doing television, but then she met with Diane, and so, so Candy was up for it, and we then set about casting the rest of it. Um, and that was, you know, that was one of the most amazing and satisfying collaborative processes of my career, was sitting every day with Diane and Joel and Phyllis Hoffman, Day after day, long, long days, seeing everybody in the world uh, for for these parts. Um, you know the story about I had worked with I had actually worked with Faith when she was seventeen on a soap oh, really? opera in New York. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, sure. I didn't put that together. When she'd come up as a model, she was a seventeen-year-old model, and 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 so I knew Faith and had no. But I can't say that I knew how perfect she was and you've heard the story how she just walked in and and brought the part to life so that was like one of the first things that happened i mean that just happened like bang faith came in diane and i said well great we're done there <laughs> and diane had already committed to uh in her mind to um bobby pastorelli for eldon and I had worked with Pastorelli, coincidentally, on another one episode thing that I had I, I, I had done, um, and so we had both worked with him. Both thought he was hilarious. She had conceived this absolutely original character, so you know, so we knew we had Pastorelli. So that was two, and then we got into everybody else, um, and I think one I, I brought in a list. For of New York actors, particularly for Jim Dial and um, Charlie, Char the two top choices on it were Charlie and a guy named John Cunningham, He's a wonderful New York stage actor, and I'd used him in the film Key Exchange, and we brought them both to the network. And John, at the time, I 
and I had seen Charlie on Broadway. I mean, you know, I, I had seen Charlie for years in theater. I mean, he was a Broadway star. And so I had enormous respect for Charlie and, and John. But, and John was more like, he was funny, had a good sense of humor, but he really was that super straight. He, you could put him as an anchor. But when Charlie came out, when we flew Charlie, we flew them both out. And we Charlie just had this extra, there was something underneath it going on that was a little crazier. And so, you know, that wasn't such a hard choice. We went to Charlie. Um, we had a hard time finding Frank Fontana. We we're looking around a lot. And actually, uh, Joe, who I'd never met and didn't even realize, I, I didn't realize that Joe um, had done sitcoms before. And I didn't realize he'd done theater. I knew him from the film Missing. Yeah. You know, he gets killed in the film Missing. But there was something about the guy that I just felt was very real. Um, and so he was on my list and, 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 and he came in and, and, but we were searching around because, and you guys have sort of noticed this, but <clears throat> there's an evolution in all those early episodes. Diane's idea for Frank originally was a much cockier guy than, than, that Joe turned out to be the neurotic mess that Joe turned out to make him. <laughs> He's just unraveling. Exactly. So at the beginning, you know, we were, forgive me for saying this, Joe, we were sort of trying to butch him up a little. At the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> now, Joe is a very butch guy, but, um, but, but seriously, he's just, it was Geraldo in Diane's, mine yes. oh interesting and we do talk sometimes about some some similarities or moments that remind us of Geraldo moments so that make that makes sense yeah i hadn't heard that before it was Geraldo, and Geraldo was very big and there was something you know this was before we kind of wound up sort of half hating Geraldo. there was something <laughs> endearing about him and something very underdog but something very you know what i mean so he, Geraldo had his good moments as well as yeah. being kind of a jerk, you know. Before opening up the safe. It's, it's, the, it's the pre-safe. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, he really became huge with the Willowbrook scandal. Yep. On Staten Island, which was, uh, I think, a <laughs> mental institution on Staten yeah. Island with terrible conditions. And he went out there and exposed that. So there were, And he was this kid, you know. Mm -hmm. He's this local kid. So anyway, I could see him wearing Frank's bomber jacket like that. I can see because also I think when we talk about Geraldo now, like you said, there's a very different implication than saying Geraldo then. Mm -hmm. yes, and exactly. so I can see that Geraldo in Frank. So he yeah. had an as he had an authenticity, but there was something funny about him. You know, his his ego, his vanity and all that kind of stuff was funny. And I think that's what Diane originally had in mind. And and, you know, we did, we weren't finding that so easily. I don't know why, but and we saw the world. We saw the world. We could see anybody. And then, of course, the killer part, the one that went down to the wire. And I don't know if you've heard this story yet. It's my favorite casting Grant. story, actually. Grant. It's Grant. And yeah, it's insane. And, and there was several things going on. So we saw everybody, and we saw wonderful people. I mean, we saw Ben Stiller, and he knocked us out. He, in terms of his talent, he knocked us out. But we looked, he was very young and very green. And also, 
rhythmically, he was in a different world. He was just, let, 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 you know, ben, let me put it this way. Ben Stiller has got a very wonderful, I'm a big fan of his. He's got a wonderful, very internal way of schwitzing. Yes. But we needed somebody that was, you know, more just desperate to please and desperate that, that, that eager beaver thing. And, and in a way, Ben was kind of too cool and played it, you know, inside himself more. I was about to say, I'm thinking about what AG would have been and thinking about when he eventually got onto Reality Bites and those kinds of, like, young Ben Stiller can play awkward. I mean, he's he's a great performer, but I'm trying to envision him as Miles, and Miles, I just, he would have been too confident. Yeah. yeah. And then Jason Alexander, you know, read, and I had worked with Jason in New York, and Jason was terrific and hilarious and right for the part, except for even then, Jason was going bald. So he, he had, you know, he hadn't lost all his hair, but it was majorly receding at that point. Um, even though he was probably only, uh, well, he was in his early 30s. And uh, I think, and we just thought, you know, he just doesn't feel like he just came out of Harvard yesterday. I mean, all the jokes were like, this, this is a baby. Mm-hmm. So we kept looking and looking and looking. We saw so many people, and and there's a funny story about about how after a long twelve hour day of looking at people, we went home, and this was the week before uh, we're supposed to go, and we couldn't find. And I I got all the way back from well, if you knew the geography, we were casting at Warner's in Burbank, and I was living in Santa Monica, and it I got all the way home to Santa Monica by 10 p.m. and I got a call Diane from Diane come back to the lot because we got a call from CBS there's this guy he's so hot the network is crazy over him he's perfect for miles the network is dying we and he's got to leave LA we got to see him and I don't remember the guy's name but it was one of those things where the network said this is it come back and see him so we all reassembled in our in the room and this is a terrible poor guy story but we were punchy i'm telling you we had been casting already and we'd already all gone home i don't know if diane had made it all the way home but she lived in topanga this is these are major distances <laughs> we came back to burbank and we reassembled in the room like at 10 10 30 oh, no. because the guy was just getting off another set and oh no and there's four of us and the guy and he starts reading and it was the bite your hand moment because we knew instantly that this guy was not going to get the part. And here we had to go through this charade and act like, and act like we weren't exhausted and just, and we, and, and we started to laugh, but we all managed to control it, Joel and Diane and I, but we were staring at each other and just holding it in. And until and so that we could politely thank the guy profusely for reading for us late at night and make a big fuss and get him out the door. And then we just fell out laughing like a bunch of, you know, desperate kids, which is what we were. And then the the two two things that happened that that for me are, you know, I'll never forget about about the um, casting of. Well, there's three things about the casting of Grant. One is. Um, that I had said some, or we had 
all agreed something quite obvious at the time, which was that we were really looking for a Matthew Broderick. Mm. And but Matthew was already a, mm. a big star. But Matthew had done all these Neil Simon plays on Broadway. So I contacted the director uh, of uh, of the uh, Neil Simon plays, who I knew, and I asked him for a list of all of the understudies and all of the road company guys who had ever like been in consideration or replaced and replaced Matthew. And Grant's name showed up on that list. So so I asked for I asked for the New York casting director to put all those actors on tape. And then Greg German came in and Greg was an actor who I had worked with at the O'Neill Center in Connecticut in theater. And I loved Greg. Uh, I, I, I loved and I yeah, and I, I just thought he was terrific. And we took Greg to the network. You've heard this story? Uh, not the whole story, no, but we know that Greg of- almost got the part. Yeah. yeah. Well, he got the part. I mean, this is a painful story because and I'm I think we're all big fans of Greg's. But Greg was quite a little bit more like the the um, Ben Stiller version, a much more kind of acerbic and internal miles, which is a way of saying it was very funny, but a way of having a there was something about him that made him a little less vulnerable to Murphy than than Grant turned out to be. Right. So um, anyway, we took Greg. We took several guys to the I don't remember who else to the network. And Greg won the part. And. I was very happy, and we all went home, and I got a call the next morning, uh, maybe from Joel, I don't know, but uh, Diane had slept on it. She'd woken up and said, it's not right. I just can't. This is not what's in my head. We can't give up. And we had to take the part back from Greg, which was very, very painful. And but Diane was, you know, listening to herself, which is Diane has always listened to herself. And she's right to she's right to she knew what she needed. And it made us go. And this was like on Thursday and Friday before the Monday. This was Thursday or Friday before the Monday. And we knew it was really close. But yeah. to hear that. Yeah. Oh, no, 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 no. This was so serious. And then what happened was that we were sitting around in this place and Diane was on the on the phone. She took a phone call with somebody and they had sent us um, the New York tape. And the and the New York casting director it was would say uh, look at one for and you know there would be 20 people on the tape and the casting director would give an opinion and say you know just check out number 1 number 7 you know. And we had looked at number one and number seven or whatever, and we didn't like them. And then Diane took a phone call, and I started fast-forwarding through the tape. And when I came to Grant, I saw him, and there was something happened. And I stopped fast-forwarding and started to play the tape. And I said, Di, come here. Come here. Look at this. And at that moment, we both went, that's it. That's really it. So we had to immediately fly Grant out. And he flew out. We threw him right up against the network. He got the part. He intended, he didn't come out 
with any clothes. He didn't come out with any toiletries. He thought he was going to go home. We said, no, you're not flying this weekend. What if you miss the plane? We'll buy you everything. I didn't say this. This is the producer speaking. But you know what I mean? <laughs> they put him in a hotel. They got him a toothbrush. And that was it. That was it. The rest was history, except for the part where I gave him my, my eyeglasses, which is what happened during rehearsal. Oh, that's so awesome. Here, I'll show you. Yeah. Those are his glasses. Yeah. You, you recognize his glasses? How funny. So no, he didn't so start awesome. with glasses. He never wore glasses at all. But, the, you know, and, and it was somewhere around when we were doing their first meeting and the whole Shirelles thing and stuff like that. And we were going over it and going over it and going over it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I mm-hmm. walked up to, and I, I felt like he was he was reaching for certain things because the truth of the matter is, you know, Diane really modeled the part in her mind on Joel, her husband. And Joel and I grew up mm, a mile and a half from each other. We didn't know each other, but we grew up in the same neighborhood. And um, we both had a certain Jewish energy and Jewish sense of humor. And Grant was going to have to act that. That's not who he is. And so he was searching. He was searching around it. And, of course, he ultimately found his own very particular energy that was Miles Silverberg. And it's not, you know, in no way a cliche, but uh, his own original thing. But at one point I walked up to him and said, try these and put the glasses on them. And it helped. And he liked it. And so we said to the prop guy, get these exact glasses because <laughs> mine were prescription. Yeah. yeah. I was like, how did he see and he got him, you know, the empty glasses, and uh, it was a great prop guy, Larry Dolan, and it was amazing how fast he'd come up with something. And uh, that was it. That was it. Never took him off. Well, the reason it's one of my favorite casting stories as an actor is, is it's the power of a personality of an actor and how everyone is so different and that you could tell just, you know, silently that he was right for the part. But I, I also now, in, you know, the present, find this story also interesting because it can never happen today. You know, everything is put up as an individual little clip. Clips. And uh, I've actually been a reader for pilots before here in New York, and I, mm-hmm. I watched a casting director take someone's clip and just put it in the garbage. Yeah. And not even send it to L.A., you know, make the decision for yeah. you, like mm-hmm. those casting directors were doing, yeah. whereas you got the whole tape. So even though they made the decision for you, you were able to go through it. And so it's such an, a specific story that couldn't happen again. Well, and I was going to say from another actor perspective is that when we talk about the trajectory of our careers and looking at your types and looking at that kind of thing, that the idea that your work as an understudy, as a cover, as a replacement, that those things do say something about your work and about your energy and who can, who can replace Matthew Broderick. I mean, we're going to want a new one eventually. So where is that one? And I love for those of us who are performers like us to hear that, that your, your full resume can impact and it, that little thing that you did, maybe you weren't the first star of it, but that does mean something about what you're able to produce. No, that's it. And also I think for for, for Greg, since uh, he did go on to Ally McPeel, it's still a story that, you know, you can be a great actor, but maybe not appropriate for that particular part, but your part will come along. Mm -hmm. Exactly. As a matter of fact, Greg got the part because he was such a good actor. He was the best actor who gave the best performance up to that point. And so he got the part. But Diane knew that if she was going to write a series for 10 years, and a part that was such a linchpin part in her conception of the show, she had to feel she had to hear the music that she had in mind. 
and and that wasn't Greg's. It was Greg has this incredibly wonderful clipped, you know, this really hyper intellectual clip delivery, which is really fun, but it just wasn't wasn't Miles to her. I now you mentioned this this person before, um, but I just wanted to ask you your wife. Um, had something to do with Murphy Brown once. She sure did. She sure did. She's in one of our favorite episodes, Indeed. actually. We talk about we that episode a lot. very excited. On another plane. Well, she just called in. I should have put her on the line. That, 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 would, have, <laughs> it, that would have been brilliant. She could have phoned in from London. Oh, my God. How stupid of me. Uh, how, how was it directing your wife? Or had you directed her before? Well, I had. That's actually how we met. These, those were the days when, you know, it wasn't yet illegal to date somebody you worked with and who mm-hmm. you admired and came to know over time in a same mm-hmm. workplace environment. You can't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> we've been married for like, uh, well, we're heading towards 40 years. I don't, not exactly sure, but, um, Congrats. but yeah, so no, it, it worked out. But, uh, so I had worked with her before, but, but you know, it's always, it's always a special nerve wracking, you know, sort of thing. But Diane knew, um, uh, Nancy and and I think it was Diane's idea uh, to have Nancy play that part and and Nancy um, she plays the for the she plays the what we used to call stewardesses the flight attendant uh, on the plane that is about to crash that Murphy and Frank are on which causes them to um, flash back to various aspects of their lives or forward in their imaginations um, to their deaths. And we keep going back and forth between these flashes and the crisis on the plane. Um, and, and, <laughs> and Nancy has this wonderful ability to play, um, uh, to try to keep it together when also, while also going haywire. And so so she was the flight attendant who's going haywire while giving you instructions <laughs> about and asking if you want nuts. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The hitting on Frank part also was pretty hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Frank, all that stuff. Yeah. She's she, very distinct considering yeah. that it's a very small part of an hour episode. Um, but she is one of the guest stars that I remember. Me too. And um, as we were doing research on you and I realized who she was, I went, Oh, and it's, you know, there's some small parts in the show that you don't necessarily, or all sitcoms you don't notice, but mm-hmm. she stands out in my mind as some, one of the funniest. Well, she's become, she, be, she became rightfully famous for these, for coming in and delivering these odd, comic moments i mean she was in um she has this great moment in terms of endearment uh she plays this clueless uh she gets what uh, jim brooks um said was the key the last laugh in the movie before it all goes to cancer uh she 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 she's a she's a clueless guest at a party and she comes very cheerfully up to deborah winger and says patsy tells patsy tells us you have cancer my husband works for Ticketron, and I'm in real estate, or something like that. Oh, is that when she starts laughing? <laughs> yeah, and 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 Diane, yeah, and, yep, and, yeah, uh, and uh, Deborah Winger spits, you know, does a spit take, spits out her food in response to this clueless girl. That was Nancy, and then in John Sayles' uh, movie Passion Fish, she has this long monologue of uh, uh, "I didn't ask for the anal probe" about an actress who. 
had to audition for the famous uh, sci-fi movie, abduction movie. Mm-hmm. So Nancy's like a past master at this, and 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 on another plane is one of, one of many clueless characters. She's played brilliantly. <laughs> it's okay. The best people play evil people, so clearly the smartest yeah. actors play the clueless yeah. ones. That's true. No, no, it's a Judy Holiday uh, mm, And by yeah. the way. Segwaying, uh, uh, you know, I could tell you, I could talk about Nancy all day. I could talk about yeah. her part in Crocodile Dundee, very so. But, but, uh, but, um, um, segwaying off of Judy Holiday, I think that that's the great quality that Faith had, because Faith. Oh, great ab- segue! Absolutely. You know, because Faith is a very, very intelligent, very strong woman inside this this really wonderful sunny sweet ingenuous package that we associate or certainly up until that point culturally you know were markers for a bimbo which meant that she could represent everything that um that uh murphy stood against uh, as a woman Somebody who was prefer a woman who was preferred for these doll-like qualities, these Barbie doll kind of qualities, uh, except for for to last ten years, she really had to be a form formidable woman. And for Murphy to grow, she had to come to respect uh, Corky. And when we started, and it didn't take that long, but it wasn't on day one when we started. You know that. For Candy, that was going to be like a real acting thing to come to, and, and a writing thing to come to live with Faith. Faith, I mean, Corky could have just been the annoying foil forever. She could have wound up being just that pain in the ass character who just was sure to make Murphy pissed off. Instead, they really became friends, admirers, colleagues over the course of the first couple of years, that relationship grew incredibly. And, and it, it grew as, as, uh, as Faith brought her own intelligence and strength to the part, and Candace came to just really love and admire her. And that's, that's what you're seeing on screen. A, and, and of course, the writers wrote to it. So it's a wonderful evolution. The biggest surprise for me when we started this podcast and rewatching with a critical eye is how much I love Corky. Uh, I definitely was the little girl who grew up idolizing Murphy. And so, you know, I, I've talked in the podcast about how I did a, I did a thesis of top girls by Carol Churchill Mm -hmm. and about, you know, the being raised at the, you know, in the prime of third wave feminism and the idea of you have to become more masculine to succeed as a woman and there were these certain qualities that um definitely came into murphy about that that combo and being an an adult woman now i i find corky's character to be incredibly moving and important i think even the second episode devil with the blue dress on comparing the two of them and what that conversation brought up i i love her character so much and i'm so i'm continually surprised by the the intelligence and the wisdom that she shows, not even knowing it. It's true. It's true. I, I, I look at it in, 
I, you know, I now look at it with hindsight, of course, but, but I, I'm telling you, we didn't actually know that. We didn't know all of that. We knew that she was going to make a great foil. We knew from the first time she said Shiite, you know, that she was going to do all the wrong things, you know, and everything about her look, everything about her poise. She delivered that, that beauty queen thing, you know, uh, so well. But we didn't know where, I don't think so. I mean, you know, Diane tends to be pretty prescient, you know. Diane might tell you, might, might have known more than, than I did, but a lot of that was being discovered and, and faith in many ways showed us what the possibilities were, I think. We talk a lot about how much we love that faith wanted the part with the understanding that she wanted there to be growth. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that's a lot of credit to to an actor to feel empowered and invest that into her character. Also, there's something else, which is that faith is faith is such a great sport. You know, she's a great sport. She she had a hard she had a situation with somebody who's less internally secure than she is um, would not have opened herself up to. She had to be the butt of a lot of jokes. She got teased a lot. We all teased each other mercilessly on the set. You know, Candy's a prankster. Everybody, every we, we, we as you've heard stories, we, it was a very uh, fun, loose rehearsal day in which, you know, part of what took time was not just doing the lines. Part of what took time was sort of playing these games with each other and, and the relationships that we're building off camera, you know, bleeding, bleeding into it. But Faith was always ready to, to play that part and not feel like she was the only other girl and the butt of the jokes. And, you know, and we were, you know, we were pretty seriously incorrect in so many ways. I mean, it's a different time, but, but, it was a bit of a, of, of a fraternity on stage with Candy being one of the guys, you know, but Faith, you know, gave as, you know, as good as, as good as she got. And she, she was a riot. She was a riot to work with. One of the things that I had enormous fun with, with Faith and Grant and, and all the guys and Charlie and, and Joe is that I, um, when it, when it comes, I, I'm a big fan of Punch and Judy. I'm a big fan of, Certain kind of slapstick. I love hitting. I love comic hitting. <laughs> yeah, we noticed that. We're going to definitely open the episode with that quote, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I got a chance, I could find a place. I, I, I would stage it and then ask one of them to hit one of them and then to hit each other. You know, kind of Abbott and Costello kind of stuff going on. And they all got so good at doing this to each other and I never got, you know, tired of it, but partly it was like a bunch of siblings. It was the kind of thing you can only do with your siblings. And so there was, I, I, I just thought pain is funny, but, but, um, uh, it, it also conveyed the sense that this office was, um, a place where you went with siblings, you know, you played, you know, so that was a lot of fun. Funny enough, we, we just recorded uh, 
two episodes recently. Um, obviously, we're going in order. So we had done My Dinner with Einstein, which is full of just Fuck the Andy. three of them smacking each other. Andy, right? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, and then and Faith, Joe, and Grant all smacking each other in the background while things are going on, which is very stooges. Oh, I have to and check that out. I haven't seen that in years. It's they're hysterical. The boys are just being boys, and Faith looks like an exhausted mom just trying to get them to stop. It's hysterical, and they're always just in the background. But then we also uh, we're just talking, uh, or no, we're about to. Yeah. Do we're about to record uh, the unshrinkable Murphy Brown and that opening is them on set as the set is building throughout production and they're about to go into uh, broadcast and you have them playing basketball and then you have what looks like Frank goosing Murph, uh, Faith and uh, all this kind of physical humor, which informs a lot of their relationships. I really appreciate seeing that physicality in the background, which is maybe also a theater thing, but I think mainly it's something that we champion the show is that we don't get a lot of exposition dumping a lot of relationships and information that comes out of dialogue or their interactions and those physical relationships tell us a lot about these people. I mean, that was, that was the, the most fun. I've heard you guys talk about, uh, the other thing I was really always been very proud of that I consider myself an, an instigator on was Charlie Kimbrough reactions because I, I, I would ask him, you know, I, I'd say, you don't like the smell of that. And he would do that wrinkle up the nose thing the first time. And then, and then from then on, we all just cracked up. So then it became a signature thing. And uh, my job was mainly at the, after that, it was like, say, you know, Charlie, Charlie's a wonderful actor, a man of great taste. And, you know, he wouldn't want to go to the well too often. And I'd say, no, I think we should. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's still funny. Let's do that. And then how does, and then all that stuff, how to, it, Diane wrote in all these opportunities of like dancing, for example. So we had to ask the question, how do each one of them dance? So the, some of the physicality, you know, the structure for that was written in like the, and that opened up whole worlds to us of, of, of behavior and, and behavior um, is my favorite kind of thing. Yeah. Us too. And Jim's dancing is a particular favorite of ours. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like there's this little boy inside this super, you know, the, the whole stiff thing and, 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 and is this combination of a little boy, which is Charlie inside there. Uh, cause Charlie is a very soft, sweet, not soft, but I mean, he's a very loose guy. He's the opposite. You can't get a stiff to play a stiff. You don't want a stiff to play a stiff. He's, the, they don't understand the humor of it. He's a very loose guy putting that thing on. He's also, there's also a musical comedian inside there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a musicality to all these tiny gestures that, you know, that are ch- trying to bust out of, of his, you know, facade, which I just love. I never get tired of. Mm-mm.